Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. This is a, this is a, top, this is a, high, or a, a tough task, or a high task, to get these verses, to, to preach this. But I want to ask you a question this morning. The question is, what rules over us? What rules over us? What rules over you? What rules over me? I thought about this question, I thought about in periods of time throughout our lives, and there would be different things that would rule over us. I thought about our younger years, like elementary school, you're wanting to fit in with classmates or to have friends, to be popular in a sense. Um, thought about in high school, thought about your looks, what you were wearing, maybe what your figure looked like, you're growing in desires for a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, so st- social status was very important to you at that time. Maybe it was your athletic achievements. You know, in today's world, in today's culture, your story is about what's called youth, or youth sports specialization, where a child from a young age through high school will focus on one sport, and, sp- and parents will spend thousands of dollars on, on that so that their, their child one day could earn that scholarship to the college, university. Maybe it was your academics in high school or in college that ruled over you. Maybe pressure from parents to succeed at a high level, to go to a good school, to work hard, so you'll be able to accomplish your dreams, your goals, becoming an engineer, a nurse, a doctor, a lawyer. Or for some of you, it was to meet your future spouse. We called that the MRS degree. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you relate to those things even today. Some of you in the, are in those stages. A lot of other things to, to rule over you. I think typically for young parents, kind of the stage that I am, we think about our careers, think about our children, parenting them, we think about our marriages. Notice a lot of the things that I've mentioned, they're not necessarily bad things. It's good to work hard, it's good to have goals, it's good to have desires, right? Those things are, they're, they're good. They're good in the eyes of the world even. The world said, hey, these are good things. We want these things for you. And they aren't things that necessarily lead you to prison. They aren't things that necessarily cause divorce. They don't lead to substance abuse. They are good. They are charitable things. And they lead to success. They lead to prosperity. They lead to happiness. They lead to flourishing. Leads to Facebook comments. Leads to... Instagram likes, and it leads to retweets for those in the social media world. But most of us in this room this, this morning, we know that there are more, there's more to life than this. At least we should, right? But, but sometimes we forget, right? We forget. At least I do. I forget at times. I let things rule over me. I can. I can let things creep in that rule over me. To say something else is maybe more important needs more attention at the time. We are still in this fallen state. Luke Hoover did a great job explaining that to us this morning in prayer of confession. But my hope today is to allow Scripture to speak for itself, to magnify Christ, to make Christ look big, so we could redirect our thoughts, redirect our hearts, to be less worried about what the kids are going to eat for lunch today after church, to be less consumed by the deadlines that we have next week, at work, but to be more captivated by the Lordship of Jesus Christ and to say to ourselves, yes, Lord, you are good and I surrender to you. You are Lord. And that's what the 
title of the sermon is this morning, Christ is Lord over all. If you turn to your notes there, if you're kind of following along with that, there are a couple fill-ins, and I'll just kind of read those out to us. There's a good chance I'll probably forget to mention them. Verses 15 through 17, he is Lord over creation. Jesus is Lord over creation. He is Lord over creation. Second part, he is Lord over the church. Verses 18 through 20. And the third point, he is Lord over reconciliation. Reconciliation. Ben already brought up reconcile. Reconciliation. So we're going to read Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, if you want to follow along with me in doing that. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, were thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these rich words we read here this morning that were written nearly 2,000 years ago and how they still reign today. Help us to see your lordship. Help us to see you still reigning. And that, Lord, that we are so grateful that you chose us. And not only you chose us, but you keep us. Thank you that you created and that you sustain. We love you and we pray this all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We continue to work through the book of Colossians. Rob said uh, two weeks ago that the theme of the book of Colossians is the fullness and the sufficiency of Christ. The fullness and the sufficiency of Christ. And we are going to see that very clearly today in this text, that Jesus is beyond sufficient for our greatest need. Why? Because he is Lord over all. He within the Trinity is Lord of it all. He's Lord over those who are His, and He is Lord over those who are not. As we read in Romans chapter 14, verse 11, it says that one day all will bow to the knee of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says that so that, in, so, so that at, the, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. John MacArthur says this about this passage. He says, of all the Bible's teachings on Christ, none is more significant than what we see right here. Douglas Moo, in his commentary, says that this is the most, most famous passage in the letter to the church of Colossae, and it's one of the Christological high points in all of the New Testament. We see portions even of this being repeated and fleshed out through the rest of the letter to the church of Colossae, to, to this letter to them here in Colossians. And I say this all to say that there is much importance 
that we, we need to take here. And I hope over the next half hour I can do it justice and paint for you a clear picture of what is going on. And my hope is that this would lead us to praise Christ for who he is and what he has done. So point number one, he is Lord over creation. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the ancient of days, as the prophet Daniel says. He was before time and no one created him. It is here where we deal with what's called the Arian heresy, this idea of the Arian heresy. What is the Arian heresy? It's where where they would have said that this shows us that Jesus has not always been, but that he was created. Arian heresy comes from this name of Arius. Arius, who lived in the fourth century. The Arian heresy saying that Christ was not an eternal being, therefore makes him not equal with God the Father, And it really debunks this idea of the Orthodox Trinity. Well, there's a council held in Nicaea. Nicaea to debate this. And Orthodoxy was held up in 325 AD. 325 AD when this took place. And it's where we get what's called the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed. Okay, this creed opposes heresy specifically that Jesus is an eternal being and equal with the Father. I'm just going to kind of read what it says because I think it's important that we get this. Okay, 325 AD. This is what it said. This is what they said. These people that came together, they said this. It says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten by the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were created. This is a strong statement on the preeminence of Christ in 325 AD. This is such a strong statement in Christendom that many of the classes that I took at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary would bring this up. It's so important that we would see this. It's foundational in church history and it squashed this idea of Arianism and the heresy that Jesus was a created being and not equal to the Father. And I thought about this. I said, think what would have happened if they would have gotten this wrong in 325 AD. Think what would have happened if they would have gotten this wrong and that things would have gone Arius' way. Now, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe in the sovereignty of God But this was a monumental event that led to many other strong creeds and confessions throughout church history. When the church comes together under biblical orthodoxy and puts out statements and confessions that go against heresy and goes against the culture, these things matter greatly. I think it's very important that we see that this morning because there's been some major debate for many years, centuries, over this text. When the church gets together, it matters. It matters greatly. Even just this past week, I already mentioned in the prayer, just this past week at the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention held in New Orleans, messengers from churches all over the U.S. convictionally planted a flag, uh, planted a flag in the ground for complementarian for the role of pastor in the office of pastor. The office of pastor as ordained by Scripture for qualified men. And not just any man, but qualified men as qualified by Scripture. It's a huge win for Orthodox evangelicalism, not just here, but also worldwide, for the largest 
denomination in North America to stick their flag in the ground and the importance of, of a debate that's happening in the church today. And we praise God for this, and we praise God for his working when the church comes together to discuss these difficult matters. It's important. All right, it's my, my rant. Firstborn from the dead. Let's go back to that. Firstborn from the dead. What does it mean? What, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Firstborn of the dead. The Greek word prototokos is better understood as Jesus' rank and sovereignty. Jesus' rank and sovereignty. He was before creation and the statement of his rank. He was first. That's where we get this word preeminence. Some of you in the ESV, it says, uh, uh, what's it say? The preeminence of Christ. That's where we kind of get this word. Preeminence means, means first. Means first, but they, but 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 he, but he is from the beginning, and he has always been. Jesus was not created. He was not created. Uh, th- things things were created through him, and they were created for him. We see that here. The things visible and the things invisible. Heaven as the things invisible. Earth being the things that are visible. He's before all things, creator of all things. And you know what? Here's the beauty of it. Not only is he the creator, but he holds it all together. He doesn't create and say, hey, have fun, good luck, hope it goes well. He has this type of power to create and then sustain it. Christ knows what he is doing. Isn't this encouraging to us? Congregation, isn't this encouraging to us that he creates it and he sustains it? I thought about an illustration. Think about the car that you drive, the house that you live in. Some of you are mechanics and engineers in the room, so you guys get this, right? You're going to get this. Those things, they had a creator. That house, that vehicle you drive, it had an engineer, it had an architect. It had factory workers, it had construction workers that built this, but they're not the ones that sustain it. They build it, but they don't sustain us. You know what? Those things fail us. Right? Our, our cars break down. Our houses have issues with different things, and sometimes they happen at the worst times, right? You've been there. Your AC goes out in the middle of a 95-degree day. That's not fun. Your car dies on 270. That's not fun. When things do go wrong, typically it's not those creators that come to fix those things. It's usually somebody else, or it's you and me, and we have no idea what we're doing. We have no clue, right? But Christ sustains all that he's created, most importantly, you and me. All the way throughout the universe, he sustains it all. Christ, sorry, Christian in the room. Christian in the room, you can trust Christ. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be believed in. No matter what's going on, we can trust God. If he can create and he can sustain the universe, we can trust God. Non-believer in the room, who are you trusting to sustain you? Who are you trusting to sustain you? What are you trusting in to sustain the world? Who has created the world if not God? Is it all by chance? Even by sheer chance, the chances of the God of the Bible being our creator is astronomically higher than random chance. We have to think critically about these things. But not only is Christ the creator and the sustainer of the universe, but he is the head of his bride the church. Verse 18, he's, he's the Lord over the church. He is Lord of the church. He is the head of the church. People ask, who leads the church? Well, to be honest with you, it's not the pastor or, or, or pastors. 
It's not the deacons. It's not the congregation. It is Christ. He is the shepherd of the under-shepherds, the elders. And we praise God that we can trust him through that. He creates and sustains. He leads the church. He is the right man for the job to lead his bride. And he, Christ, will build his church. Matthew 16, 18. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it because it is his. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's Christ's church. And we follow him because he is worthy. He is worthy from what we just read because he is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. And he, he died and he was the first to raise from the dead. And because of that, he, is, he now reigns and he is resurrected. Jesus went before us. He paved the way. He paved the path. And now, he leads the already, the not yet, and the not yet, the church. The already, his redeemed, but not fully redeemed in the sense of holiness. The church is special to him. That Christ leads. And he ordains men as qualified by scripture. It's his shepherds. It's, it's his under-shepherds that come under his leadership to help lead the church. And that everything that we see there in, in verse 18, that, that everything, that in everything, or another way you could say, among all people, Christ might be preeminent or supreme. This was done by his resurrection. He went before us to reign. He is Lord. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9 says that therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. His name reigns above every name, but not everyone will see it that way. Not everyone will see it that way. Jesus is Lord whether someone agrees with that or not. It does not change on someone else's opinion on the matter. Jesus is Lord, but some will not agree with this. Some will flat out deny this. Or some will apathetically not care. You know people like that. What does the Lordship of Christ have to do with me? A lot. Why? Look at verse 19. He is the fullness of God. He is God visible and invisible. Visible in the form of man and invisible now because he is reigning on high in heaven. And he is reconciling all things to himself on earth and in heaven. People and angels, the visible and the invisible. Visibly, he's doing that through the church universally and locally. And he's bringing upon reconciliation. He's doing that by making peace. Look at verse 20. He's making peace. Remember what the prophet Isaiah calls Jesus. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. He is the prince of peace. He's making peace with his creation due to the sinful nature and bringing reconciliation to humanity. But not only that, he is bringing peace within the church and within the body where Christians can be peaceful to one another. The first part of this peacemaking is most important, reconciling people to himself. Um, But but this takes place by, by him shedding his blood and taking our place that we deserve, and being the mediator between God, the Father, and us. But remember what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm called the most famous sermon ever told. But he said in verse 9 of, of chapter 5, he says, Blessed 
of the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. And this is a reflection of heavenly character of Christ. Not only that, but it's a requirement for an elder within the church. They are to not be quarrelsome. What does that mean? What does it mean not to be quarrelsome? Well, in, table, in a Table Talk article in 2018, Tom Askell, of all people, writes about what it means not to be quarrelsome as an elder. He says it means to be a person of peace because we have a God of peace. We are to strive for peace with everyone. So if Christ is the Prince of Peace and elders are to be peaceful, then people within the church should be people of peace. Have disagreements, yes, but disagree charitably, lovingly. Not, when, not to outwin an argument, but to contend for the faith rightfully, truthfully, compassionately. Just because we disagree on something does not mean that we have to hate each other. Very important in today's world. The church is not to be like that. The world is watching, but before the world is watching, God is watching his bride. Care first about what, what, what God sees about his, his bride before the world. It is important what the world sees, but it's more important what, every, what, what, what God sees. We just strive with peace with everyone. Be people of peace within the church. Because our shepherd is the prince of peace. The ultimate bringer of peace. Having reconciled peace with Christ, leading to the peace with one another within the church that Christ leads. And he does this through an exchange to reclaim those who are his by exchanging himself on the cross, by shedding his blood, exchanging his perfect sacrifice for our tainted one so that we could have renewal, a new relationship with God. Maybe a better way to put it is a relationship with God, which Paul which led Paul to talk about the lordship of his reconciliation. Why, why, do, we, why do we have this? Why, why does this all matter? It's because he, Christ, he is, he is lord over reconciliation. Reconciliation. What is reconciliation? Well, to understand, I think, reconciliation, we have to see, we have to look at verse 21. Look at verse 21 where it says here, it says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Now, there's some language here that really reminds me of Ephesians chapter 2. Another very familiar passage. We, we looked at this, the, I would say, the, the better part of, of Ephesians chapter 2. But I think there's some, some language here that is, is, is very similar, talking about sin and separation and disobedience and, and evil. But God, through Christ, has brought reconciliation. The relationship of, of, of being aliens now being mended. Things have changed. They are completely, completely different. I thought about relationships in our own lives, right? We all have relationships. You know, Ben talked about relationships with fathers and the good, the bad, and, and sometimes the ugly with that. But I thought about relationships in our own lives, re- relationships that maybe had been tarnished, have caused separations or maybe estrangement. Some of us have felt that in this room. Some of you might be even going through that right now in some way, shape, or form. You've had close relationships become difficult. And you will have probably more in the future, more than likely. But some of those relationships 
whether it be high school classmates or extended family or immediate family or former coworker or current coworker or roommate, they have been reconciled to their, their differences. They are good again, and some are better than what they were even before. But the reconciliation that Jesus offers the sinner is incomparable to any relational difference or estrangement that is out there. This passage says that we were, or you were alienated. You were a stranger. There was no relationship with God because of you and because of me. It's important to see that he did nothing wrong in this. He did nothing wrong. We were the ones in the wrong on this one. You and me, we had sinned against our creator and our sustainer over trivial, temporal things. But he has now reconciled those in Colossae, and he, he is reconciling these people here in the gathering this morning through his life and by his death in order that we might be blameless and holy and above reproach. Those who used to be aliens, hostile and evil, in verse 22, they are now blameless, they are holy, and they are above reproach in God's eyes because of Christ and because of him alone. Because there is no other way. Acts 4.12 tells us that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Praise God for that. Look at verse 23. There's some interesting aspects to here that we're going to have to flesh out. There are really two big questions in this passage. Two big questions. We've already answered one of those. What's, what does it mean to be the firstborn of all creation? And now we get to this question that, and it's kind of two parts here that we're working with, but what does Paul mean when he says, if indeed you continue in the faith, that's kind of part one of question two. Part two of question two, what does Paul mean when he says that the gospel has been, been proclaimed in all creation? All right, so let's look at part one here. So question one, if you, if you indeed continue in the faith, what is he saying there? It almost sounds like that Paul is saying that you, you may not continue in the faith, which maybe brings up this idea of losing your salvation. Now, we've already talked about in our statement of faith. We don't believe that, all right? I don't know if God's providence in that, but we don't believe that. We don't believe that somebody can lose their salvation. But turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, 19. And I think this does a very good job of explaining to us this is not what Paul's saying here, that to, to not continue in the faith means that you've, you've lost the Holy Spirit, okay? 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Hopefully this, this will help us end here, whether you wrestle with this or not. John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they were not of us. So they were not of the Lord then, they will leave the faith they once believed. However, if they are the Lord's, they will continue to stand in the faith. So I think what Paul is doing here is he is encouraging them in the faith. He's saying, hold tight. Lord, show them grace. Praying for them. May these people be your chosen saints. Do not let them waver from the gospel. The gospel that has been proclaimed to all the earth. So what, what does this mean? The gospel that's been proclaimed to all the earth. Does, does, does this mean that the Great Commission was complete in Paul's day? All the world had known of the gospel. 
I think that's the real question we have to ask here. What does this mean? Well, I had to dig deep. I had to dig deep on this. It goes back to 1986. That's how, that's how far deep. Before I was even born, John Piper had this sermon in 1986. And he had to say this, and I think he sums it up really well, really efficiently, really quickly. I'm just going to kind of read what he says, because I'm not going to try to explain what he's saying. I just think it, let's just hear it straight from the horse's mouth, okay? This is what Piper says in 1986 in a sermon. He says, literally, we could translate the last part of verse 26. The gospel which you heard, the one preached in all creation under heaven. This wouldn't imply that the job is done. It would simply imply that it is the gospel's destiny to be preached everywhere. And that this is, in fact, happening. Verse 6 in, in, in Colossians 1 suggests that this is what Paul means. He refers to the gospel which has come to you as, indeed, the whole world as it is bearing fruit and growing. The point in both texts is that the gospel is not for just one group, but for the world and that it is, in fact, making great headway through the world. So the, the job is not finished. The job is, is not finished in Paul's letter, but it will be. It will be, and it's spreading in the first century, and it's spreading today. And this was, Paul's, this was his assignment, to spread the gospel, to go from place to place, to share the gospel, to disciple new believers, to raise up indigenous leaders and leave for the next city. This is what he did. And this is why missions locally and globally are so important for the church. We are not to be about building our kingdom here, but we are about to be the kingdom of God. This is not about growing citizens' church. I don't, I don't think we want to be huge. I don't think we want to be a, a mega church, but we want to be about planting churches all throughout central Ohio and beyond. Raising up pastors and leaders. One church cannot reach a city like Columbus on its own. It's why we pray for churches each and every Sunday. May the Lord, may the Lord bless them and keep them faithful to their ministry and what they're doing. It's why we desire to raise up men in this church to plant and revitalize churches in our area, we need more healthy churches in Columbus, Ohio. We need more faithful men that are called to ministry, to answer the call like we see Paul doing here at the end of verse 23. He became a minister. But here's the thing about ministry. And Paul, Paul's a great example of that throughout many of his letters. Ministry is hard. It is grueling. And believe it or not, pastors work more than one day a week. Who knew? Ministry is hard. It's hard on your family. It's hard on your health, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. It's not fluffy. It's not fluffy. I had a pastor tell me one time, he said, pastoring would be great if it wasn't for the people. You laugh because you know it's true. People are difficult. You deal with hard things. You deal with difficult things, situations, people dealing with hardships and sickness, divorce, apostasy. The pastor deals with that. I'm really selling this, ain't I? Men in the room on this Father's Day. I'm really selling this ministry thing. 
What does Bonhoeffer say in his, his classic, The Cost of Discipleship? Bonhoeffer says, when a Christ calls a man, he, he bids him come and die. Surrender. So men in the room on this Father's Day, and we have some great men in the room. We have some great husbands. We have some great fathers. I want to ask you the question here this morning. Is God calling you? Is God raising you up right now as He did Paul for ministry? Really wrestle with this. We need, we need faithful proclaimers of the gospel. We need men called by conviction to preach the gospel of reconciliation to those who are not currently reconciled. We need faithful churches serving the community and sharing the gospel boldly. Because reconciliation to God is our greatest need. And Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over creation. He is Lord over the church. And He is Lord in bringing people to saving faith in Himself. Believe that, Christian in the room. Believe that. Trust that. Rest in that. That Christ builds His church. Jesus is Lord, and He's reigning over us today. He's building His church locally and globally. I'm going to end with reading this small portion of a familiar hymn. I was hoping we were going to sing it this morning. It's okay. It worked out. This hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Some of you are familiar with it. Just this, this one part of crown. I think it's the last, the last uh, the stanza or whatever it is. I'm not a music guy. But crown him with many crowns. It says this, Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake, my soul, and sing of him who died for thee. And hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. I love that last line. Hail him as thy matchless king. There is nothing that matches there is not, nothing that matches him. He is the king above all kings, and he is the Lord of all lords. Let's pray together. Believe that this morning. Father, we thank you for this rich text that you have graciously given to us, the church. Lord, I pray that we would just be immensely grateful for the grace that you showed us and to know that the king that we serve is the king of kings. Help us to not take that lightly. Help us to trust in that. Help us to know that you've created it all and you sustain it all. You really do have the whole world in your hands as we used to sing as children. Remind us of that. Help us to keep that at the forefront of our minds. Do not allow other things, trivial things, to rule over us and to reign because you do, no matter if we believe it or not. You are our Lord. Thank you for the saints, says the church. We love you, Lord, and we praise in Christ's name. Amen.